What is critical race theory and why is it under attack? I'm Sushma Raman, host of Justice Matters. Joining us to discuss this timely topic, as well as related concepts such as structural racism and intersectionality, is Dr. Victor Ray from the University of Iowa. Dr. Ray's research applies critical race theory to classic sociological questions to show how race shapes social processes typically considered as race neutral. Dr. Ray is a non-resident fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and is also a research fellow at the Carr Center. He's an active public scholar, publishing commentary in outlets such as the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, and Boston Review. Thank you so much for joining us today, Victor. Of course, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So I'd love for us to get started by your providing us a short definition of critical race theory and why it matters. Okay. I think critical race theory is a body of research that tries to explain why racial inequality and structural racism is so intractable in the United States. So it arose during the late 70s and early 80s as a group of legal scholars like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw were trying to explain how the law, which had been really effective, uh, you know, the civil rights activists had used the law very effectively and the legal system very effectively to open up rights and opportunities for Black Americans and Americans of color more broadly through the civil rights movement. And, you know, by the late 70s and early 80s, a lot of that progress had stopped or in some cases even started to reverse. So integration into schools and into workplaces had slowed down. There was massive resistance in many places to opening up opportunities. So these legal scholars wanted to explain how the law could be kind of a double-edged sword and how the law was used to help stop and in some cases, you know, beat back those advances. So it started in legal studies, but critical race theory drew from its start from a whole bunch of other disciplines. So it drew from history, it drew from the social sciences to argue things like race as a social construction or to point to the long continuity of racial inequality across the U.S. One of the things that critical race theory did that I think was pretty innovative was develop a set of concepts based on those disciplines or based on, you know, parts of those disciplines and the law that were portable. And so after it was established in the law, it started to spread, key ideas started to spread to places like education or my home discipline of sociology. So you talk about structural racism that is enduring in the 20th century, and I'm also thinking about how does one define structural racism. And I should clarify that our podcast is heard by people in over 150 countries and by a lot of people who aren't necessarily steeped in work around human rights and civil rights. So there's a number of ways to think about structural racism. One, I think, is, you know, typical definitions of racism kind of individualize the problem. They tend to say, you know, racism is when 
people of different groups have a negative idea or impression about someone from, you know, the other group, and they act on it in a way that imposes harm. So this is sort of, you know, we can think of hate crimes legislation that places the blame on individuals, or we can think of, you know, typical accusations of racism are really about people's attitudes. And so there are a couple of assumptions here. One is that racism is a kind of stable attitude that people carry around with them. And it doesn't really change based on the context in which they're living. And so I think, you know, there are some people, white supremacists, who I think behave in that way. But I think a lot of folks don't. And so what structural racism is, is it's a way of setting up, combining ideas about race with social and material resources in ways that have a lasting impact and that are often bigger than any individual. And when structural racism is really effective, it can become almost an invisible background in which people are operating. So here I'll give an example of something like segregated schools. So if you look at the history of segregated schools in the United States, it's very clear that this took a lot to arrange, right? It took legislation. It took the denial of access to neighborhood schools by people who didn't want, you know, black children or children of color to attend to attend their schools. And it also took things like legislation or segregation at the level of the city or community that was enforced by banks or by redlining or by, uh, you know, individuals refusing to lend so people of color could buy houses in certain areas. And so what this has set up is a system which has not been dismantled of segregation that then has effects on individuals to this day even though we weren't necessarily the individuals who constructed that system, right? Because segregation is enduring. And so what structural racism does is it often compels people who may even individually have, you know, pro-integration attitudes to participating in a system that they may be opposed to And they don't necessarily feel personally culpable for, even though they might benefit or be harmed by that system. So you talk about the law as a double-edged sword. And I'm wondering if you can give us a couple of examples in recent decades of the ways in which the law has been used for rollbacks, whether intentional or unintentional. So I would think about the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision. Some sociologist, Amanda Stevenson, has argued that this is going to disproportionately impact Black women, and they will see a pretty precipitous rise in death during childbirth. I think we could think about the overturning or the gutting of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court in 2013, and that has led to a flowering of voter suppression tactics across the country, right? And I think those are pretty clear. So as you are fully aware, critical race theory has come under attack from a variety of corners. And I'm wondering why it is under attack and why is it so much in the news now? So 
I have two answers to this question. One is Christopher Rufo, who has been credited with sort of spearheading the propaganda campaign against critical race theory, said that he was watching the protests to George Floyd's murder, right? That sort of massive protests in 2020 that some folks have said are the largest civil rights mobilizations in U.S. history. And those made him nervous. And so he started reading a number of books. I don't know if you remember that moment, but there are a number of books on race and racism that sort of Mm -hmm. shot up the the bestseller Mm -hmm. charts. He said he started reading that literature and he noticed citations to critical race theorists. And he said when he heard the term critical race theory, he recognized it as a kind of perfect weapon to beat back the progress that folks were attempting to make through the protests around George Floyd's murder. So he said, you know, for sort of folks outside of the academy, the words critical race and theory were were somewhat threatening. And it had benefits over things like woke or politically incorrect because critical race theorists themselves adopted the name and used the name to describe their work. So I think it's interesting that he chose a body of literature designed to explain a prior period of racial backlash to attack and to start a racial backlash against the kind of racial reckoning that some activists were trying to push for. So I think from, not me, this is not my analysis, but from the folks who started the moral panic, it is a racial backlash. So I think that's one reason. The other reason I think it's so effective this time has to do with ideas from critical race theory. So Derek Bell has a classic idea in which, of interest convergence. And he says, when you look at U.S. history, most progress for people of color has happened, uh, and black people in particular, when their interests converged with white Americans. And so he uses, I think counterintuitively, the Brown v. Board decision to make this case. And he says, look, uh, white Americans and black Americans knew for decades that school segregation in the South was immoral. They knew that it curtailed the agency of Black children and made it hard for them to compete. This was the entire point of segregation. And yet courts for many, many decades, including the Supreme Court, upheld segregation under the Plessy v. Ferguson decision, right? A separate but equal, even though Everyone knew separate but equal was was a lie. So Derek Bell looks at that moment of Brown v. Board and he says, what changed wasn't a sort of moral awakening on the part of white Americans, right? He says, if you look at the backlash to the decision, it was clear it wasn't a moral awakening. But what was different was the context of the Cold War. And the Soviet Union was successfully using segregation and discrimination in the U.S. to get decolonizing proxy states to join their side in the Cold War. And so, you know, there are these State Department cables and folks who said, we need this victory in Brown v. Board to fight against this propaganda. And so Bell says, white elite interests and the interests of Black Americans who had been fighting against segregation converged in that moment. So I think the reason the panic has been so successful this time is we're in a moment of interest divergence in that the Cold War is no more. There's been a kind of 
profound reshuffling of the geopolitical order. And if you look at who, you know, at least elite white conservative Americans are looking to as models in the world, it's Orban's Hungary, it is uh, Putin's Russia prior to the invasion of Ukraine, if there's all this, this praise of Russia, it's Poland, it is rising authoritarian states that have really low or very few protections for their internal minorities. And so I think we look at the Supreme Court decisions last session or Victor Orban speaking at CPAC, we can see a real sort of yearning for that kind of authoritarian strongman persona and a kind of mask off moment where there's no need for certain segments of elite white Americans to fight the Cold War or say, these are the American ideals. They're looking to places with a very different set of ideals. And so I think that's why the moral panic has been so successful this time. That's a really interesting framing to think about interest convergence versus interest divergence. So I'm wondering what it takes to transition from the current state of polarization and interest divergence to one of convergence and where we can shift from racial backlash to racial progress? So I think that's a big question. I think critical race theorists would answer that in a couple of ways. One is there were decades of movements necessary prior to the Brown decision that led to it. And so I think they would point to social movements and social movements not being separate from movements in the law or sort of like broader political movements. So things like the movement around George Floyd's murder really can force folks to take note of what's happening and push for certain kinds of changes. So I think that's probably the biggest one. I think it's harder to say in the sort of like broader geopolitical order of who folks are looking to as models. I think there's a real process in some parts of America of what folks call authoritarian learning in which people are borrowing propaganda techniques and, uh, you know, undermining elections like the kinds of behaviors you see in, in foreign authoritarian countries. What I would say, though, is, you know, sort of unexpected geopolitical events can shift that. And so not totally and not entirely, but, you know, when I started thinking about this, Putin was really a model and a lot of folks in the GOP were pointing to him as a kind of strongman that they thought, you know, Donald Trump should be. But I think with the invasion of Ukraine, you've seen folks back away from that. And so one thing I think is the way we think about race and racial inequality and progress in the U.S., this is a problem in my own prior work that I've been criticized for, and I take the criticism very seriously, is we tend to be very U.S.-centric. And I think an underappreciated component of some critical race thought is how global geopolitical currents can impact what's happening at home. And I think it's important for folks to have that kind of broader vision. Uh, and I would even say, you know, you saw this kind of vision develop 
in prior generations of Black activists like Dr. King's trip to India, Malcolm X's trip to Mecca, in which, you know, they, they were very U.S. focused, but then they realized that the struggle for racial equality in the U.S. was actually a global struggle for political and human rights. Du Bois had a similar trajectory, too, so... Yeah, and I think that connects very nicely to really thinking not just about ways in which the global national connection is regressive, but also progressive. For example, movements around uh, reparations are happening, you know, around uh, not just in the United States, but also in the Caribbean, for example, and conversations with activists across different countries uh, from Brazil to U.S. to different countries in Africa. So I, I definitely see potential for both national level as well as regional and global social movements. And I'm very heartened by your emphasis on the role of social movements and civil society in trying to bridge that gap. So, you know, the current moment is very much focused on banning of books, identifying words that or phrases that are, you know, flashpoints. And I'm wondering, what does it take for us to pivot? Are there particular frames that can help us move towards this interest convergence? Are there particular social movements that you think are particularly relevant at this moment? So I'm going to speculate here because I don't know for certain. But one thing that seems confusing to me is, at least in the sort of like formal political sphere, it seems like running against people who are banning books <laughs> and who are, you know, threatening teachers is a winning political strategy. And so I know that the Democratic Party says that they're focused on bread and butter issues. But what that ends up doing is leaving large parts of their constituency subject to these attacks without any protection in the political sphere. Uh, so I think that's, that's not necessarily a movement, but I am surprised by the kind of lack of formal response politically, right? Of like, we're above the culture war fray, I think, is, is not necessarily effective. Uh, now, that being said, I also think, and I, and I write in my book, that I also think it's important to recognize that, you know, you are not going to convince everyone. Uh, there's a group of folks heavily invested in misinformation and disinformation around these ideas. And so you figure out how many folks you need to convince and you figure out the strategies that would work for them rather than thinking I'm going to engage in every debate or I'm going to, you know, waste my time trying to answer folks who are disingenuous and not acting in good faith. So yeah, I mean, I think those are two strategies. How effective they will be, I think it's an open question. So, Victor, I'm sure you've covered a lot of these topics in your book, your recent book, and I'm wondering if you could just share a few highlights for our audience. So, I think I would highlight the chapter on racial progress. And so, I think one of the things that critical race theory does is it challenges the notion that things are always getting better in the U.S. So, the way the story of uh, you know, the way I learned about race in the U.S. was like slavery was bad. We had a civil war. Jim Crow was bad. But then Martin marched and Rosa Parks sat and Obama was elected and racism ended. 
And I think what critical race theory says is, look, there were people committed to racial inequality and structural racism fighting each of those movements and that we can't let our guard down, that we can't assume that racial progress or improvements happen without folks committed to pointing out where we failed and pushing back against it. Another part of the book that I think is important is the discussion of how critical race theorists use personal narratives to get beyond the kind of dry statistics that you often hear when folks are talking about inequality and try and jolt the reader awake in a different way. So Derek Bell also, to illustrate his idea of interest convergence, has a great critical race sci-fi story called um, Space Traders. And it's kind of an allegory for both racial progress and the history of slavery in the United States in which he has a hypothetical alien civilization come to the United States and offer to trade limitless energy and environmental renewal and the payment of our debts for all of America's Black people. They don't say what they're going to do with all of America's Black people. There is a referendum. And as often happens when majorities are given the ability to vote on the rights of minorities, white Americans vote to send all of the Black Americans with this group of aliens. And it's a really powerful story that captures some trends in U.S. history, right? So one of the claims of critical race theory is that at the end of Reconstruction or following the civil rights movement, majorities of whites came back together and sold Black rights for their benefit. And so it's an allegory of that. And, you know, the imagery that he uses is really powerful because it evokes the slave trade and the Middle Passage in a way that you don't often see in academic literature. We often are try and use language that is detached and not visceral and like coolly analytic. And I like seeing folks trying to get the idea across in a way that makes people feel something I think very different. Thank you for sharing that. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit also about intersectionality as we think about ways in which we want to move forward with respect to racial progress. Sure. So I talk about intersectionality in the book, uh, which is, you know, very central to critical race theory. And I both draw on Crenshaw's early works that outlined the basics of the theory and showed how by not thinking about the very specific positions of Black women, they could be excluded from law and from protections of the law. So I use the example that Crenshaw pointed out of women who were working for GM, who were hired after the Civil Rights Act, and it was Black women who were working for GM. Now, GM had hired both Black men and white women prior to that, and these women were working, there was a recession, and they were the first to let go because of seniority rules. And so they sued GM as Black women, right? Because Black men had been hired and white women had been hired prior to this. And the court said, we refuse to recognize your standing as Black women. You can sue as either Black people, Black men, right? So the, the hidden category is men, or 
you can sue, as being discriminated against because of gender. And so it showed how the law literally could not, in some cases, recognize this intersection. And I would point to current debates around the impact of the Dobbs decision as also something that is going to like very disproportionately impact Black women. And you see this in some of the sort of coverage or debates around the decision, but definitely not all of it. And so that's one way to think about intersectionality moving forward. Uh, Another thing that I would say about intersectionality and one thing that I'm kind of heartened by is intersectionality, especially the version that arose from the Cumbie River Collective, was also a critique of kind of respectability politics in prior movements. And so, you know, the exclusion of Bayard Rustin as a gay man from some parts of the civil rights movement or the exclusion of Claudette Colvin, who had refused to give up her seat on a bus weeks before Rosa Parks did because folks were worried about her as a working-class Black woman being able to stand up to the assaults that were going to come throughout the movement. And one thing that I think was very heartening about the Black Lives Matter movement is it refused to do that in many cases, right? It was not about a certain kind of Black person. It was often about Black people, broadly speaking, regardless of their class status, regardless of their gender identity. And I was really heartened by that. And I think that that is the way forward for progressive movements. So, Victor, we're very excited that you will be working with us as a fellow at the Carr Center for the coming academic year. And I'm wondering if you can share your research plans for the coming year. Sure. Uh, I am also very excited about this opportunity. And so my research plans for the coming year are twofold. I hope to continue working on a book on my work on racialized organizations in which I argue that organizational theory historically had downplayed the role of race in how organizations function. And I'm going to try and rewrite some of that theory so race is at the center. The other thing I hope to do is have a series of conversations with critical race theorists, with some founding critical race theorists, and some younger practitioners. And depending on how those conversations go, hopefully publish a small book with those publications and maybe an introductory essay by me, sort of along the lines of Kianga Yamada-Taylor's book, How We Get Free, that was about women of the Cumbie River Collective and activists who had followed in their footsteps. Thank you so much for joining us, Victor. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I'm Sushma Raman, Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and host of Justice Matters. You can listen to other episodes of Justice Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about our work at the center at our website, carcenter.hks.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This is Justice Matters. Thanks for listening.